in the Bible, uh, there are four uh, records of Jesus' life. Called, we call them Gospels because they're the good news of Jesus' uh, life, his teachings, his example, his uh, um, resurrection, his, sorry, death, burial, and resurrection. Um, four books. And the first one of the four is called Matthew. And Matthew uh, presents and has like the agenda, like these aren't written in a vacuum. They're written by a guy named Matthew. And, uh, and so it has an agenda of proclaiming that Jesus is the king. It has an agenda of saying that Jesus is the king over the entire world. And his death, which has happened in the previous chapters through what we're going to read this morning, has actually occurred because of the accusation of his kingship. Jesus was politically dangerous to the people who were in power at the time. And they didn't have a separation of religion and politics or church and state like we uh, believe to have today. They, They actually were very, very much combined. And so the person who, like the Caesar, who was in charge of Rome, who was ruling over the nation of Israel at the time and kind of had a puppet governor, a puppet king named Herod. And then they had this kind of religious court called the Sanhedrin in the temple. Uh, But the Caesar, and the common phrase uh, to talk about Caesar uh, would be like, uh, Caesar is Lord. And the belief was that he was divine. And uh, the Caesar uh, was the God, and so you didn't need to worry about a separation of church and state because the state was the church, and that's the way it worked. And you could have other gods, but you couldn't have a top dog uh, because that was Caesar. And the thing about Jesus was he rolled in, and he started teaching people, and people started saying, Jesus is Lord. And so Jesus actually walked into the religious and political systems of the day and actually literally physically walked into the temple and confronted the religious and political systems of his day. And he actually shed his blood because of that confrontation with the system and the institution and the power that was set up because he was establishing himself, and this is Matthew's agenda in the gospel, is to establish Jesus as the king. And so we're going to read today from Matthew chapter 28, uh, which is one of my favorite chapters in the entire Bible. It's the resurrection. It is Matthew's uh, short tale, and he leaves out, like other Gospels, go into much great detail. Matthew kind of sticks with the main points and moves forward. Uh, and, and just the points uh, that Matthew is trying to get across that the resurrection speaks to us today. Jesus is really been crucified, like on the cross, and the most brutal death that the Roman Empire could think of or could, could develop. And then he was actually buried. Uh, he was the stone. There was a large stone rolled in front. And then the temple political, the Sanhedrin, which would be the political slash religious rule of the Jewish temple in the town of Jerusalem where Jesus was crucified, actually sent their own guard there and they sealed it. Uh, with, so that the, they would know if anybody rolled it away because Jesus had talked about his resurrection and they were worried that the disciples would come and steal his body and so that they could propagate this false story about his resurrection uh, and, and just kind of trick people into thinking that he rose again. And then this is what actually happens. Now, after the Sabbath, which for Orthodox Jews would be Saturday, Jesus died on a Friday, rose on a Sunday, Uh, and the Sunday would be the first day of the week. Now, after the Sabbath, towards the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. 
which so, this is like a side note that might just be fun for me, but if you look at posture in the scripture, when uh, someone sits, it means like that's done, like I did that, you know, like Jesus at the end of his life goes and sits beside the God the Father, and then when Stephen is being stoned, Jesus expresses concern by Jesus's, the vision Stephen has is Jesus standing in heaven, it means something. And so when the angel rolls back the stone and then sits on it, it's kind of this awesome moment where the angel just like demonstrates his swag, you know, like, hey, check that. Yeah, what are you going to do? Angel sitting on the stone, you know, like. And I'm not, I'm, I'm not saying that this is good or bad, but I'm betting when you get to heaven and you see all the angels, you'll be able to recognize this one. You know, <laughs> like, yeah, that was me, you know, so kind of, you know, we're, we'll be friends when we get to heaven, but. Uh, so the Lord, and behold, there was a great earthquake for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, his clothes white of snow, and for fear of him, the guards, the Jewish temple guards, trembled and became like dead men. They actually fell down, another gospel teaches. But the angel said to the woman, Mary and the other Mary, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who is crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come to the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell the disciples that he has risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy, that weird mix, and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, greetings and they came up and took his feet took of his feet and worshiped him and jesus said to them do not be afraid go and tell my brothers to go to galilee and there they will see me so you know in jesus's day women were not given the rights or the respect or the honor that they're given in our culture today women were seen as uh, owned or ownership was had of them uh, by their husbands or their fathers until they were married. And so a woman who would be a, an adult and not married lived in a vulnerable part of society, and providing for herself and, and securing her safety was a dangerous thing. So for when Jesus resurrects, and Jesus, if you know Jesus or understand the way he did things, tended to not do them in the most efficient way. If you're going to resurrect, you want to announce that in the temple because that's where everybody is. Jesus' resurrection is first announced. The first people to know of Jesus' resurrection are two women. Two women in a society that doesn't honor or respect women. Jesus chooses to tell these two women first and they became the first ones to worship Jesus after his resurrection. And what gets better is one of them is Mary Magdalene, who has an unsavory reputation. If you've ever met someone or if you know someone from high school who just their life was a train wreck, and then you become fa Facebook friends later with them, and you're like, wow, like uh, you've got a, a grip on yourself. Uh, that's Mary Magdalene. If you had knew her before, and you knew her now, very, very different. Um, her life, because of Jesus, uh, Jesus had 
brought an order and stability and healing, like real life healing to her life. So there's Mary Magdalene, who if you're going to tell a woman, I understand you're trying to make a point, you, Mary Magdalene may not be the woman with the reputation you want to, you know, use her or allow her to be first. And then the other Mary, did you notice what she's called? The other Mary. <laughs> like, how awful is that, right? Like, thanks, Matthew. I know Mary Magdalene, she's the star here, and I'm the other Mary. And like, theologians will debate over who the other Mary is and stuff. And she, I imagine, is in heaven going like, come on. Like, I'm the other, the other, right? <laughs> So Jesus tells these two women, the two women who are like, it's unlikely that you would tell two women, and then it's even more unlikely that you would tell Mary Magdalene and the other Mary about this. And the angel tells them and gives them the message to go and give to the disciples. So you know, the disciples, there were 12 disciples, Judas who betrayed Jesus has committed suicide at this point out of his despair, and so now there's 11 And of the disciples in the Gospel of Matthew, they are suspiciously absent from the narrative after Jesus' arrest. The disciples have failed to the point that Jesus doesn't first appear to them. He appears to these women to go and tell the disciples. The guys that he had been investing in for three years, the guys who are closest to him, James and John and Peter, Those guys get to hear about the resurrection from two women. Two women who they said, all right, at the back of the, you know, back of the bus, woman. You know, like there's, there is this reversing of the system that Jesus does in his resurrection. And he appears to the people who socially don't deserve it. And everyone would know this. And then Jesus appears to them, and I know in your Bible it says, greetings. Jesus says, greetings. And you think, greetings, right? Like Jesus would say that. In the original language, just so you know, it's the most casual hello available. Jesus appears to them and goes, what's up, yo? (laughs) Like, (laughs) Jesus appears to them as if this was a normal thing, which is like twice as fantastic as the angel sitting on the rock, right? Like, Jesus shows up and like, not even a thing, right? Yeah, I resurrected. What's going on with you today? <laughs> Nothing. Jesus is completely casual. Like, if you have a pen, cross out greetings and just write, hey, above it, or what's up, you know, or how's it going? That's what Jesus is doing here. He's not doing, like, it sounds kind of official. He's completely casual in this moment. And so when he speaks to them, and they recognize him, they fall down and grab his feet, with Matthew is trying to explain that Jesus isn't a ghost, they're not having a vision, like Jesus didn't spiritually resurrect, he actually physically resurrect, and they fall down and grab his feet. And Jesus actually instructs them to go to not be afraid, because they had this mixture of fear, because they just saw an angel, that fear is the right response, and not be afraid to just go in the joy and tell Uh, his brothers to go to Galilee and there they will see me and Galilee would be where Jesus was from outside of the city of Jerusalem and so the very first people to know and the very first people to hear from and touch and see and receive a commission or a command from the risen Jesus is Mary Magdalene and the other Mary the story goes on 
While they were going, Mary and the other Mary, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. The chief priest would be the head of the Sanhedrin who had this guard, who had put the guard in front of the tomb. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people his disciples came at night and stole them away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. And so they took the money and did as they were directed, and this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. If you have any military experience, or you have friends who are in the military, falling asleep when you were supposed to be watching is pretty much the worst thing you could do. Like, hey, you've got one job. Stay awake. Like, the people who are coming to steal the body are like farmers and fishermen and tax collectors. You're soldiers. And you fell asleep to the point that this ragtag of non-sniper movement guys who would have been making all sorts of noise came and rolled a giant stone to the side and stole a body, and you slept through that. See, they're not asking the soldiers when they come back, they're not like just saying, oh, we failed in something or something big happened. They actually would be punished by death for complete failure or dereliction of their duty. And so the amount of money that would have been taken to actually pay these soldiers for the one thing that a soldier holds, at the end of the day, a soldier holds his honor and acting honorably, they paid them to give that up and sacrifice that honor. And so the soldiers come back, are paid off, as they've reported that this angel showed up and Jesus isn't there, he apparently resurrected. And they pay him off and pay them off and then they go about their business and they tell their family and their friends. So you know, if you've never been a soldier, if you go and tell the other soldiers, yeah, we fell asleep and it went bad, the other soldiers mock you. You don't get promoted. Like you, This isn't like, oh, that's cool. And then they wonder why you're driving like a brand new like horse and buggy because <laughs> they didn't have cars. But they don't know, like he is a terrible soldier, but something's shady about what's going on. What's the side note that we don't see here is that the part of the first people to know about Jesus, they wouldn't have seen Jesus talk to Mary and the other Mary as they're leaving, but they would have seen the angel sit on the, the stone and actually say, Jesus isn't here, he is risen, just like he said. And then they become people who are in charge of keeping dead Jesus in the tomb, become the first missionaries who go and tell the first people to hear about the resurrected Jesus are the people who tried to kill him and succeeded in the first place. Jesus' resurrection, even in his resurrection, is maybe the most forgiving and restorative act in history. The first people to know about Jesus' resurrection are the very people, the first people, sorry, outside of those who followed Jesus, meaning the first missionaries were Jewish temple guards, and the first hearers outside of those who already believed 
or already followed Jesus were the very people who organized for his death in the first place. How shocking is that? So, now the 11 disciples, they went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had directed them, which we don't know where that is, but they apparently knew where to go. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Other Bibles say hesitated. And Jesus came and said to them, and this, if you know your Bible or you have a titles, is known as the Great Commission because it's the commission that Jesus gives both to the disciples and to followers of Jesus today. Jesus says this, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. Jesus gives them this command when he meets them with this group of disciples, whether it was just the 11 or there were 11 plus others or other people who were believers in Jesus. We know there was about 120 before Pentecost or about 120 people who believed in the resurrection Jesus. He gives them this instruction of here's what you do now. So Jesus died and you thought everything was for want, everything was a waste. Now here's what you do. And Jesus tells them to do things which are, for us, okay, that's normal. But if you put yourself in their shoes or in their context, Jews and Jewish men and women who were living in an understanding that they were the chosen people of God and Jesus came for them. And if you read Jesus' teaching, he says plainly, I'm here for the people of God. For Jesus to then say, okay, you're going to go and make disciples. And you're going to make disciples of all nations. Jesus lost some of them right there. Because Jesus is saying, you're going to go and tell everyone about me. You're going to go and you're going to teach everyone the things that I've said and the things that I've taught. And for Jewish people in that day, the understanding that they were God's preferred people, that was a radically shocking message. If you can for a moment... Imagine enough arrogance to think that your people or your group or your family or your ancestry is God's favorite, which, here's my token Canada joke, you know. But if, if you believe that you're God's favorite and then God tells you, go tell everyone else, you experience a significant amount of confusion because you're God's favorite. Like, why would I do that? Like, I don't think you understand, God. I'm your favorite. And Jesus tells them to go to all nations and to teach them, make disciples, to teach them and to baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, which that Trinitarian expression probably confused some of them as well. Some of them were like, explain what you mean, Holy Spirit. We haven't heard of this guy yet. And then Jesus tells them, oh, first of all, he tells them to do this because he has all authority. But then he tells them the reasoning behind this is because, and this is the last thing that Jesus says, I am with you always to the very end of the age. In all of Jesus' resurrection of taking everything that was expected or the way that you should resurrect. Jesus completely flips 
the social and religious expectations upside down. Your expectations, my expectations are not met in his resurrection because the way that he does things leans towards those who are vulnerable and outcast in society, those who hate and oppress and, and murder Jesus or kill Jesus, and then those who are obviously not God's favorite. That's who Jesus moves towards in his resurrection. So if you're here today and you're glad you're here because you are someone that God prefers, Jesus' resurrection was for those who believe that they may not be preferred. Jesus' resurrection was for those who are on the vulnerable edges of society. His resurrection is for those who don't like Jesus, who hate Jesus, and would prefer that he didn't bother them anymore. Jesus' resurrection is actually comfort to those people. And Jesus' resurrection for those who believe to be preferred or chosen by God is actually unsettling and disturbing. Because our natural inclination is towards finality. Our natural inclination is towards this um, superiority or preferredness. Because it feels good. But for Jesus, what it means to be a follower of Christ is to have a preference for the other. Which you need to know is basically impossible. To think of others as you think of yourself in all times and in all situations as Christ himself did. Like I know we like to say it and we like to do it sometimes, but not all the time. And certainly not to those who would do us harm. Like for Jesus, the people who arranged to have him killed. You, that probably isn't your reality, but someone's probably going to cut you off in the parking lot after. <laughs> like immediately after this. <laughs> and you're not going to have the natural inclination, I'm so glad that they're getting home quicker. <laughs> because you're thinking of your own lunch. <laughs> there is this moment-by-moment moment, uh, self-focus that Jesus actually confounds and confuses in his resurrection. And that is completely unnatural because we cannot do this without the last statement that Jesus is with us always. The very first chapter of Matthew, Jesus is introduced. Matthew 1.23 quotes a scripture that's a prophecy in the Old Testament. And it says that the woman will be with child and his name will be Emmanuel. And then in brackets, right in your Bible, Matthew 1, 22 and 23, it says, and Emmanuel, which means God with us. The book of Matthew begins with the statement, the very first naming of Jesus is to let us know that God will be named God with us. Jesus will be God with us. And the book of Matthew ends with Jesus saying, I am with you always. The only change that happens is will to am. And the reality for the follower of Jesus those who have put their full faith and trust in God and repented of their sin and depend on him for forgiveness is that God is with you. 
There is no conditional statement with this. Meaning, if you're the worst, and I talk about this all the time, if you're the worst Christian in the room, and I mean there's 600 people here, if you're the worst, like worst, we want you to fill in a go pass and stop by the go tape. No, but... <laughs> But there is no condition to that as far as God being actively with you. And if we are, and if you read this text, Jesus is actually leaning into more of a communal understanding of you. If we are the worst church in town, like we have the most uncomfortable chair, the most long-winded preacher, we have the worst posters on our wall. Like, if, when you came in, that really is Albert Pujols with a milk mustache. <laughs> if that doesn't scream resurrection, I don't know what does. <laughs> it should scream like bad contractual obligations. But anyways, when I love Albert Pujols, I'm sure he's a good guy. He's not so good at baseball anymore. But there is this... <laughs> There is this thought that how could God use a group of people in a church that doesn't even have a building, in a town, a small town, and just in the middle of nowhere, Oregon, on the left coast where nobody even is paying attention to us, in maybe the most liberal part of the country where Christian musicians don't even come out here because they won't sell enough tickets to pay for the gas to get here. In this little group of people, God says, I am with you. And so it's possible, and it's real, and it's comforting, and it's encouraging, and it's the kind of thing that makes us get up on Easter morning and sing a little bit louder and celebrate a little bit more because Jesus is resurrected. And that resurrection actually means something. That if you're a vulnerable person in society or you've been told like Mary Magdalene and the other Mary that you're just an other or that you're not important enough to be used by God, the resurrection says you're exactly the kind of person. If you're here today and you hate the fact that you're here, like grandma made you come and you hate that you're here, like you are an atheist and you've basically been poking holes in everything I say for the last 20 minutes, Jesus is all about you because of his resurrection. Jesus' resurrection came to disturb grandma who made you come here, <laughs> but came to comfort you who can't stand God or are doubting or are hesitating or are wondering. And I'm not saying that in an accusatory tone or to try to manipulate you into something. I'm saying Jesus is crazy about you. I'm sorry that makes you even matter, but that's where it's at. <laughs> If you're completely against Jesus, if you're a part of a system that tries to deny or defeat Jesus, his resurrection is true because Jesus is all about those who understand that the world isn't all about them. What makes God different than every other religious system in the world is that in Jesus, God sacrifices everything for you. 
And what it is to follow Jesus isn't to do a certain number of things so that that's, you're impressed God enough that his sacrifice counts. What it is is to turn over your faith and trust in that sacrifice. Because when I meet the angel who sat on the stone when I'm in heaven, it won't be because of how awesome I did at this whole Christianity thing. It will be completely because of Jesus' victory over death on the cross, in the tomb, and in his resurrection. When you put your full faith and trust in Jesus, it's a simple thing where you just pray or speak to God because I believe God hears us, because I believe Jesus loves us, because I believe he's alive. You pray and you repent, which is a Bible word for turning away from like your way you were living and turning into the way of Jesus. It's the kind of thing where understanding that Jesus being all about you, the response is your movement towards God is response. The response is the laying down of your life or your agenda and the dependence on God, the dependence on Jesus and his life and his teaching. We're going to pray together. We're going to sing another, one last song. And then we'll be going our different ways. But we want you to know that no matter how you came today, no matter what kind of emotional baggage or busyness that you brought in or dysfunction in your life or in your relationships, that God is with you. Like the real, live God of the universe. Jesus' resurrection says not that he will be with you, but that he is. And he's very, very close to you. And you're going to get cut off in the parking lot and just for like a moment, just for a moment, you'll react in a way that actually brings glory to God or that moves in a preference towards the other and you'll shock yourself because it's not who you are. It's not how you normally think. And that's a cheesy example, I know, but you'll have things that happen on Monday and Wednesday of this week and you'll actually start to experience what it is to have life with God. Let me pray that way for us. Jesus, here in this room are some of us who maybe have never made a commitment to you before, and today might be that day. And so we pray that your spirit would speak to us in a way that would draw us to you, would allow us to say that we would be apologetic and sorry, for our sin, for doing life on our own, and that we desire to move towards you. We desire to turn away from sin, put our full faith and trust in you. And we thank you, God, that resurrection is not about how awesome you are, but it is how amazing you think we are. In, we say that in complete humility because we, we are sure that we don't deserve a God who loves us. We can list out, Lord, the things that we do in opposition to you or the things that we do that are so self-focused that we ourselves might not even believe that we love you. But in the humility of that moment, Lord, we thank you for your sacrifice, for your death and your resurrection, for your turn towards us, even us. And we lift up your name in this place asking that you would allow us to experience your presence and know, Emmanuel, God is with us. Amen.